HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating pride. We speak to the bakers who created a custom wedding cake for Charlie Craig and David Mullins, the couple behind the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. We felt that what happened to Charlie and David was an absolute injustice. Kat Johnson addresses the controversy surrounding Anthony Porosky, Queer Eye's food and wine expert. Many viewers thought these recipes were unsophisticated. And finally, Hannah Forden speaks with nutrition educator Leah Kurtz about the relationship between veganism and queer identity. It's an interesting way in which food can challenge invisible value systems even greater than sexuality does. Listen to Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E this week, and celebrate pride with HRN. Available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite listening apps. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. Before we get into the show, a quick note on our summer fun drive. It's going on right now, and it's our goal to raise $25,000. So why would you join Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member? So what is Heritage Radio Network really worth to you? If you tune in once a week or every day, uh, we'd love to have you help us continue to bring you the most entertaining and thought-provoking stories from the world of food and beverage. So you could set up a monthly recurring donation for just 5 bucks a month, you can get an individual membership, or for $10 a month, you can get a household membership. Please help us make uh, Heritage Radio Network here to stay and here for a very long time. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. And now let's get into the program. Uh, each episode on the line, I sit down with a chef or restaurateur to track the line of their career development from first jobs in food to culinary school or not to discussing their current position. Today, my guest is Emma Benson. 
She's the executive chef of Aquavit. She moved to New York in 2010 to work at Aquavit in the pastry department and then was quickly promoted, taking over the entire restaurant as executive chef in 2014. Since then, she has been named a top chef in New York City by multiple publications, including New York Magazine. She was nominated for a 2017 James Beard Award, and the restaurant currently holds two Michelin stars. Chef, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You grew up in the town of Falkenberg in Sweden's west coast. It's north of Copenhagen by a couple hours. Give a give a take five or six hours. Maybe? Okay, so it's not a huge town. It's somewhat of a tourist destination a little bit. I'm curious, what is it like growing up in a a small coastal town in, in Sweden? What was your childhood like there? Wow, it 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 was amazing. I had. I I was one of those kids who could never sit still, so I had projects going all the time, everything from gymnastic to horses to fishing to everything I could imagine getting my hands on. And uh, I think being able to grow up uh, that close to the water also developed my uh, my taste for seafood and, and, and real uh, good seafood uh, from clean water. So... For me, that's been a, a blessing to be able to have that already as a kid. What are some of the traditionally eaten fish in your village or in all of Sweden that come close by or directly out of the waters there? So Falkenberg is uh, it's very famous for its salmon. And I remember growing up that salmon was uh, it was a luxury. It was something that I loved to eat, and I could only get it on maybe Saturdays or if it was a party or anything like that. And you can see how much the seafood have changed uh, in, in that not many years from now, where salmon is not considered to be a very sought-out fish. And um, I think having the, the value that appreciate the, the seafood and the quality... Um, have really changed how I, the way I see. When you talk about salmon, we're talking about gravlax, like a, 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 a curing preparation. Are we talking about a salmon fillet that is seared or roasted in the oven? Like, what's a what are the ways that you grew up <laughs> eating it? Um, <clears throat> I think one my favorite thing was always uh, gravlax, um, and it's it's still one of my favorite uh, preparations mm-hmm. to eat salmon, but. I can eat it in in any forms if it's poached or seared or. Do you do a gravlax preparation at the restaurant right now? Oh yes, is always. It, and how, what is that traditionally served with? Like, what's the plate setup of a Swedish gravlax meal or plate setup? So I'm I'm always trying to have two versions of it. Uh, one more traditional, which is served with a, a kind of like a mustard and dill. Uh, emulsion and maybe just some uh, lemon wedges and then I try and do a version where it's a little bit more taking it into uh, a new fun way of seeing it and using it so I right now on the menu it's served with um, watermelon cucumber and lovage so <clears throat> you, just to see a different way of how you can utilize the same product is it traditionally eaten as a, as a breakfast food uh, or is it is it any time of day that you eat it? Any time of day. It doesn't matter. You can eat it whenever you want. It's interesting because so I'm Jewish and growing up, lox was special for my family as well. Sunday brunch, you had bagels and you had lox, but 
you didn't really ever eat it at another a different time. And not only was it would be weird to eat lox at, at dinner time, <laughs> but also I always felt like uh, mostly non-Jewish people or people who hadn't encountered a lot of Jewish people before, uh, they were really surprised that you would eat something that has such an intense flavor. But a lot of the seafood in Sweden is cured and it has a lot of intense seafood fishiness to it, right? Like, that's a part of the cuisine, right? Yeah, I mean, everything dates back to the days where refrigeration and, and things like that wasn't uh, available. So a way to survive the winters and, and the long month uh, when it was harder to, to get produce, we had to find a way of uh, taking care of it and making it last. So that's where all the, the curing and brining and smoking and drying, all of those preparation is the base of the, I would say, all the Nordic uh, cooking as of today. And that's, that's something you'll see in, in every uh, restaurant. Going back to historical preparations and you know things being passed down from generation to generation, your grandmother played a large role in your life. And uh, was she someone that you learned a lot of cooking technique from? Life lessons, like what type of what type of teacher and role did she play in your life? Um, I think the the most important thing that I, I learned from her and that uh, it's always stuck in in my mind is that. I saw the love for the cooking with her. She would be so satisfied spending days in the kitchen preparing something and everything was always prepared prepared from uh, scratch. There were there were no shortcuts. Uh, there were no cans. Uh nothing like that. Everything was always pure ingredients, not being overly complicated, just prepared uh, with a lot of love and and time and I think I think that's one of the most important things when it comes to cooking. Uh, at least one of the things you need to learn first. And then you can go into all the fancy things afterwards if you feel like it. But Do you hold on to a lot of family recipes? Does anything still make it into your either personal cooking life or your professional cooking life? There's definitely been been recipes on the menu that's been based out of uh, of her recipes. They're everything from desserts to liver pâtés and and things like that, where I get the inspiration from from her and then tweak it a little bit and and add things to it so it get a more of a modern feeling. But the the base techniques are uh, are coming from her. As someone who did pastry for a long time, is there anything from your childhood that you can remember sparking a serious interest. Is there a, a family cake or a traditional cake that, that you ate that you thought, I would love to know how to, how to make this one day? Or was it kind of a gradual uh, appreciation of, of pastry over time? There was a couple of things. Uh, amongst other, a chocolate cake that um, uh, my grandmother always used to make. And I... I very early on got the recipe for it, and we didn't live very close to each other. We were still six hours away, so I would get the recipes from her so I could actually make it at home uh, for myself. And I think a lot of, of things like that was I, I found her doing it, and I liked it, and then I tried to do it uh, myself. You ended up going to culinary school, which you did at, by American standards, at a very young age, uh, you started at, at age 15. You were in culinary school, right? Around then? 
And yeah, almost 16, I think. And that's really a time in someone's life when most people don't have anything figured out. Mm -hmm. You're still very young, maybe curious, maybe lazy, but that seems like a French style to me from afar. I I think 15, 16 culinary school, that that seems really intense. Um, Was your culinary schooling uh, very rigorous or was it, uh, more like high school that had some cooking elements to it. What was that general experience like? I think overall we're very uh, blessed in many parts of Europe where you can actually, if if you... I wasn't very good at school and I wasn't... Um, I couldn't focus on on the writing and also coming up with the dyslexia and 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 just having a really really rough time with school that we get to have the ability if you wanted to to go into uh, a prof- professional school as an option you still get to do the basic things but around 80% has to do with the profession you're choosing um and i i i remember that that was i think that was the, the start of me actually doing well in school. I, I was I've been struggling my whole life, going through and and feeling stupid and like an idiot. And then all of a sudden, uh, culinary school came along, and and those classes actually helped me focus when I was in, in English or Swedish or math and things like that. So it's something that I have actually encountered many times before that lots of chefs have been dyslexic and they felt alienated in early schooling and kind of isolated by that. Um, Did you know that you were dyslexic? Was it called dyslexia or were you kind of struggling with uh, figuring out what was going on? And, And when you got to culinary school and you didn't necessarily need to be doing traditional learning, did it just kind of, was it the most freeing experience for you? Um, it, it was actually quite amazing to be able to be seen in another way. And and back when I started school, dyslexia wasn't really anything that was on, uh, was heard of. So you were just either a lazy student or I had to go to speech therapy and, and, and learn things. So going into culinary school was a way where you could just learn in a different way you learn with your hands your eyes and then if you didn't spell everything correctly or things like that it it didn't really matter because it it wasn't the it wasn't the point but i feel like being able to do something like that and and focus your energy on it 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 helped my my focus on the other um the other things that I had to learn and I actually went from a <laughs> a really bad student to actually doing really well in those classes as well because it was more I guess accept accepted to to be who you wanted to be when you started working at uh at Zbaka Krug was that in was that in like an externship from culinary school or had you graduated um it's a two Michelin star restaurant probably a very high pressure work environment. You were quite young. What was that experience like? You didn't have a lot of kitchen experience at that at that point. So do you remember what your first day, days were like? Did they have you do some terrible tasks? Did they make you, you know, 
peel vegetables for <laughs> for a week straight in the basement of the restaurant? Like, what was that at first experience like? Um, I've done it, but I'm not at that restaurant. Uh, I would say I was actually very, very lucky. Um, I was terrified out of my bones the first day I walked in, and I. I remember I, I wasn't really I didn't really know what I was walking into and and what a kitchen would be like but come to think of it afterwards I've been very blessed to have that as my first experience because this was a restaurant where everyone treated everyone like family and everyone loved to be there I know during the five years I've stayed there I was one of the the shortest employees in the kitchen it wasn't most people stay there five, ten years. And, and that was only because the work environment in the kitchen was very professional and, and felt at home. So I've always carried that with me on um, when I'm searching for, for new places to, to start my work at. And, and that's also what is based in my kitchen today and how I run my kitchen today. In your In your early life, what pushed you into your culinary pursuits uh how how open were your parents to you pursuing that path um in sweden at that time was it considered is it was it an honorable profession it sort of varies from country to country uh now it's everyone says being a chef is wonderful it's sort of reached a pinnacle of it's kind of sexy now so i think that people i think that that people when they make that choice it's not there's not as much pushback, but I'm curious, um, when you decided to go to culinary school, what did your family think of it? And also, how did you decide that that might be the path for you at such a young age? I've, I'm Being a chef was, was always on my agenda from very young age. It was, uh, I think I had a short period of my time where I wanted to be a fire pilot, but that kind of died after, <laughs> uh, after a little while when I realized uh, what I... The, how hard it was <laughs> but um being being or wanting to be a chef my my parents always supported me and and i remember uh, the school i went to was was in stockholm and uh, obviously more circumstances than just me going to that school but my whole family moved up that summer to to live in stockholm part of me being able to be at that school at the time so um, I've always felt 100% um, backed by them. And, and to be honest, I just think that they wanted us to do something that we would love to do than go into a profession when you're miserable your whole life. <laughs> Maybe you, not everyone is that, but... I, <laughs> I, I think that most people are, actually. Uh, <laughs> did you put anything ever on the menu at Edsbaka uh, at Krug? Or I know you started working at the restaurant located in the Opera House. I'm curious when, if you can remember, the first thing that you put on the menu, either pastry or not pastry. How did that feel to be working towards the goal of being in restaurants? And then, you know, putting something on the menu for the first time can feel really validating. It's terrifying and exciting. But do you remember what that dish may have been? Oh, wow. Um, no, not really. Um, I do remember that I felt it was really cool at Edsbacka where the head chefs would actually give us uh, an idea 
of a dish and then they would just say figure it out and that opened my mind that I they would put enough trust in me to uh, sometimes it worked out and sometimes it, it turned into a disaster but uh, there was this dish where they wanted to have this weird kind of horn looking thing with vegetables coming out of it and I just couldn't figure out enough, like how to create it. So I, re- I don't know how I came up with the idea, but I started like rolling it around my fingers, like kind of like claw, like bending them and rolling this straight out of oven honey twill around my fingers, burning. It's <laughs> hot, really hot, but it worked. And then I think. God, it was on the menu for like three months. And I <laughs> then was, you, had to I do, was, you had to do it every single I day. Had, <laughs> I had to do it every single day. And I was the only one who did it. And I just, I think I lost like all the feelings I had in my fingers during that time. But I remember it being worth it because the end product was something that they really uh, liked. And that was like one of those moments where you're like, okay, a little pain is, is fine. I can deal with it. Innovation through self-inflicted pain <laughs> sounds like a microcosm of the of the kitchen. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to start talking about your move to New York and working at Aquavit. Stick with us here on the line. what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is Chef Emma Benson. She is the chef of Aquavit, a two Michelin star restaurant in New York City. I want to know about when you came to New York to take the job. You had barely been to New York before, right? You had been one time for a very short period of time and you took the job. Was it a a leap of faith or did you just feel confident that it was going to be the right fit for you? I um I traveled by New York I think two years earlier or three years earlier from a trip back from uh, Mexico and it was just a two day layover and um, I just remember walking all I did was walk for like two days um, and just experienced the the pulse and the the energy and the flow of the city and and then going home after that I was 
for two years, all I wanted to do was go back to New York. And, and it's not easy. Uh, you have to have and, and get a way in um, to be able to move here. So when that phone call or that opportunity finally came, it, it wasn't even a, a question if I should do it or not. It was more of how I should do it and when I could go. So it's... Um, it's a city that you can't really forget. Once you fall in love with it, it's uh, it's over. So you get off the plane. Where do you move to in New York City? And for those that don't know, where's where's Aquavit? So you're you're in the sort of skysca- skyscraper central <laughs> of New York City. Probably a very very intense differential from where you were coming from. Yeah. So we're on fifty fifth between Madison and Park, which is smack in the middle and and coming here i i knew that this was going to take a lot of work from me so i didn't want to i didn't want to be too far away i would want to be able to walk to work and to make that happen i uh, i found two fellow swedes uh and we rented this tiny little two-bedroom apartment on um 66 and first i think and uh, it's so strange because I've, I've been living on my own or, like, living outside when when not having, like, anyone to share the rooms with or, like, the apartments with. So all of a sudden, three girls in, in this tiny little apartment was, um, was very strange to me, but it, it didn't really matter because all, all I was focusing on was always the work and... Uh, but um, I think now I moved away a year later and, and I, I tried a couple of different things and now I found my spot up in, in Harlem where I really love being able to get that, that calmness and, and the neighborhood feeling out of it and then uh, actually travel to work. So, Do you ever uh, swing by fellow Aquavit alum? Uh, his restaurant is in Harlem, right? Isn't Marcus have a couple restaurants up there? Oh yeah, he Are does. You... We're uh, we actually I just moved again, but we used to be neighbors for for many years. Very nice. Uh, I want to talk about about Aquavit and the the type of cuisine that it cooks. So Aquavit has been open for a very long time since 1987, and is it is it fair to say that it serves Nordic cuisine? Is that how it is how it can be described? Yes. <laughs> you seem yes, you is. seem unhappy with that. Uh, if there's a better way, please correct me. But this this style, this categorization, has recently sort of exploded into the cooking vernacular. Uh, everyone seems to be aware of Nordic cuisine now. Uh, one of the people, if not the person, who has been responsible for it from like a media perspective is Rene Redzepi in in Copenhagen, um, Magus Nielsen as well. And you have obviously been rec- recognized and, and so has Aquavit, but is there any part of you that feels that Aquavit hasn't necessarily been given some of the credit it deserves since it's been around for such a long time? Like it's been at the forefront of this type of cuisine. Um, do you feel like some of Aquavit has been lost in that discussion? 
I'm not sure if I think lost is is the right uh, right thing to say. I, I mean, when it comes to Swedish and Nordic food, it, it's been around for a very very long time, and and obviously we're we're all very happy and grateful for for Noma to put it out on the map. It, it's been it's been a way for the rest of the world to open up their eyes and and see what's going on and actually start focusing on the Nordic countries and. It's just a way of saying that Aquavit has been in New York for 30 years and people here knows about it. And I'm I'm thankful that whatever what it, everything that Renee has done because it makes more people find us and know that we're actually there. Um and it, it's a little bit of a different cuisine as well when you're talking about what he's uh doing towards what we're doing it's always different as soon as you go out of your countries and you start cooking um your food in another countries it's not really the same you can try as much as possible to do it but then it's still there's a little bit of a difference to it in terms of of aquavit's price point it's obviously it's a two michelin star restaurant it's quite expensive uh by by new york it's actually kind of middle of the road or even less expensive than a lot of uh michelin starred restaurants but just as a chef and um being the leader in the kitchen uh from a food cost perspective in a fine dining restaurant this is something that always i find really fascinating can we talk about the the bottom line and does food cost does it really play a role in your sort of creative conceptualization or um or does it not for some for some reason that you can explain um i definitely think that food cost plays uh, a big part of of running your restaurant everyone knows that if you start ignoring it uh eventually it it will turn into you closing the restaurant and but i think there's different ways to go around it and i've always believed more about the the food waste than actually the food cost i've always been very concerned that we shouldn't throw away food we should look to all the resources we have and be responsible with it uh the last thing i've ever want to do is throw something away because it doesn't have the perfect shape that doesn't mean it can't taste amazing. So I think more and more you will see over the course of the years you'll see more and more fine dining restaurants actually starting to use utilize big project um all the produce that you have and and that's where different cuts coming in, in as well. If if you know how to cook certain things, you don't have to use the filet mignon or the foie gras or things like that. That's and a part of me thinking that's a very easy cooking. But utilizing products or cuts from meats and animals that no one else is using, it's a way of of using whole products and that will also affect your food costs in a better way. That's definitely a turn from maybe 10, 15 years ago when really obtaining that perfect slice, the perfect shape, the square, whatever it might be, the perfect piece of herb was the end goal. And high-end restaurants could have probably been guilty of creating maybe the most food waste Mm -hmm. and really like a mom and pop joint where they 
were doing everything, everything, everything to not waste any little bit was actually approaching things with the method that you've just talked about. So as you, as you continue to use everything and try to get your food waste to zero, I want to ask about the other end of the spectrum, which is in fine dining restaurants, especially ones of, of your caliber, they sort of like caviar and truffles are almost a requirement, you know, for your clientele. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Is it, is it a use, is it a useful dish enhancer? Is it, does it, really contribute unmatchable flavor or is it sort of like a necessary evil like the clientele wants a couple types of caviar and we supply that to them because we're a restaurant and that's what we do like where where do you fall on that spectrum um so i i've it's one of those things that i i love and hate is that love and hate relationships where if it's available i will have it on the menu because my clientele at the restaurant is Uh, demanding to see it and then there's part of me that loves to eat it as well but do I have to have it in in a dish or do I have to feel like it it's gonna enhance the dish not necessarily and and especially when it comes to something like truffles is it's one of those things that could be amazing but it could also taste like nothing so I think as a as a chef you also have to like look at the quality of product coming in and don't take the first batch for the season maybe wait till it actually matures and are at its at its best uh, and don't start off too early and I think we just need to maybe be a little bit harder on ourselves when it comes to the quality of, of the ingredients because the the listings on your tasting menu are quite sparse in their descriptors <laughs> i would love to dive deeper into a specific dish have you break down its components and and preparation so i'm happy to let you choose anything from the menu obviously it's your menu but i did see something called arctic bird's nest which honestly i have no idea what <laughs> comes on that dish because it's because uh, it's pretty vague i assume on purpose so if you would be willing to talk through that one, great. If you want to choose another one, cool. But just if you can kind of unpack a, a dish for us, that would be awesome. Sure. Um, so <laughs> that that dish uh, started almost six years ago today, I think. And it was one of those dishes that took me... It, I, I think it's still being developed today uh, and changed uh, but the idea came from, we used to have a signature dish on the menu that I felt was um, very much in, in still in its 80s. So that dish I turned into what the Arctic Burstness is today. So with all the components on there, you have um, uh, little eggs that are created from a goat cheese parfait. Uh, there's a liquid uh, egg yolk uh, inside made from seabuck thorn curd. Uh, we are using some things to make sure that we can freeze the goat cheese parfait and keep the egg yolk uh, liquid, which uh, was probably the one that took me almost six or seven months to figure out how to do. Uh, getting getting very drunk in the process. It, so, so it's 
there's some sort of like agent that allows it to stay emulsified but not freeze. Is that yes? So it's use Aquavit. What do you use? Um, there's some Aquavit in it, yes, okay. and then some some other things cool. uh, that I'm, I don't really want to <laughs> sure. tell or share. The secret secrets. Arctic bird's <laughs> nest recipe. Okay, cool. So so you have those, and they're dipped in uh, a white chocolate and, and uh, brown chocolate chocolate speckles. It sits on top of uh, a blueberry sorbet. Around it is a, a, a nest made from honey twill. And uh, there's uh, chocolate branches. Um, they are dirt there. That's actually made from the recipe of, from my grandmother's chocolate cake that we bake and then uh, completely destroy and grind up uh, to resemble dirt. We also produce some halva to resemble feathers on the dish. And um, just before serving, there's also some gold leaves uh, and uh, snow that's made out of uh, frozen yogurt. Uh, mostly because I've, I've always felt that in Nordic countries, you have the birds laying egg and then the next day it's snowing. So I wanted to get that in, incorporated into the dish as well. Just as I suspected, it has 45 components and, <laughs> and, and it, three words on the menu. Um, I also saw on your menu, and I'm intrigued by this, what is 7X Wagyu? So 7X Wagyu is uh, a beef coming out of uh, Colorado, mm -hmm. and it's, um, it's a company we've been working with for probably the last four years. Uh, they're... Beef is very well, uh, I don't know if maintained is the right word, but it's very sustainable and they treat their animal well and they get to grow and, and, and uh, have a life. Uh, the, the meat and the quality of it is uh, one of the best I've ever, I've ever tasted uh, in U.S., uh, as close as you can come to Japanese almost. And uh, 7X is uh, actually the name of the farm, so... And from a sourcing perspective, how often do you, are you approached or do you approach new purveyors uh, in order to obtain product? You have a very large menu. Obviously, we just outlined that there's a lot of components on many of the dishes. A large part of the kitchen team at a high-end restaurant's role is to source amazing product. How much of that falls to you specifically and and only you or how much of it now falls to uh, a CDC or, or your Sue's that are maybe tasting new products from purveyors and things of things like that I think so far I'm, I'm the one who's uh, sourcing out purveyors and, and being approached as well by them but I've always felt that I'm very loyal to the purveyors who uh, signed on board with me four years ago when I took over and and they uh, been backing me up and making sure everything is on point so I, I wouldn't say it's very easy to come in as a new purveyor um, I'm very um, loyal and stubborn in that way that you really have to to prove that you have something that none of them have so and very persistent because I'm very hard to get a hold of. <laughs> In terms of plating, much of the much of the food that you're seeing coming out of restaurants today, at least 
from my perspective, are heavily influenced by Nordic plating. Uh, there's a sort of very composed uh, precision to detail that that exists in your plates. For me, it's kind of coincidental that we were just talking about the Wagyu, but it sort of represents Japanese technique. Like it appears very light and minimal, even when it's not. Um, why? Why are Nord? Why do Nordic? cuisine plates look like that what how is your style kind of evolved in plating i know there's a lot there but uh but the, i guess the main question is is like why do the plates that you put out look the way that they do how do you organize your plates oh wow um i think everything always comes down to to flavor profile and 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 the um the textures of a dish and then everything gets played around to in the kitchen and and you you kind of have this sense of like when you're plating something you feel like it's it's too easy and then that's when you start complicating it <laughs> but i always feel like i want a dish to look like it's very simple but then when you actually really look at it, you start to realize all the layers to it. And you start to think that, wow, every little thing is here and there, and there's another thing. So I want it to be very easy to take in for the eye, but if you really wanted to look into it more, you will see all the layers and the depth of the dish. How would you describe your leadership style in the kitchen? How do you approach the day-to-day of prep service and organizing your team um i'm i'm very at least i think i'm very patient (laughs) but um i always feel like you have to get a chance to learn and i'm not a big yeller or screamer or I'm more of the the silent type who um, would approach anyone and and ask them if if they're happy with it, if they're proud with it, if if they did their best they think they could. And most of the time, they'll figure it out themselves that maybe they didn't, and then they'll fix it. And very rarely do they do the same mistake again. And I feel like it's... I see of it as a little bit as a backwards psychology to it, where I think it's better if everyone that does something realize that I can tell someone that they're doing it wrong or I can yell at them and tell them that's horrible. But if you don't realize it yourself, then nothing is ever going to change. So I I try and, and have that mentality in the kitchen where everyone has to to figure it out and, and, and love what they're doing. A little bit like I got taught in, in the beginning of my career as well, where the best way to learn is to, to figure it out. And, and I'm there and my sous chefs are there and everyone is there as, as a mentor. And, and I encourage everyone to always ask questions. There's never any stupid questions. And believe me, there's many stupid questions, but that's totally fine. I'd rather have you ask them. But... Uh, so that's a little bit like how I'm trying to run the kitchen. What worries you 
day to day in the in the operations of the restaurant is there anything that I mean you've you've been at Aquavit for a long time and you've been in a leadership role for several years now is there anything that you still feel like you're still getting your feet underneath you on um is there anything that's keeps you up at night wow um many things keeps me up at night uh but i think it nowadays it's the smaller things uh in the beginning it was more a worry of uh keeping staff or people walking out or finding purveyors i think now it's it's still having staff actually <laughs> but uh more now it's more about did this get ordered or do they know that they're working or someone's got to call in sick and 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 more more those those worries or we need to change the dishes or something like that but from a staffing perspective are you finding that are you having a trouble obtaining the high level of staff that you need at i guess what we'll call affordable price point everyone wants to i mean we would all love to pay our staff 50 bucks an hour like like they had a normal desk job like people at a desk job make 65 70 thousand dollars a year and of course we want to pay our cooks that but i'm curious are you finding that you're that the level of talent that you're able to acquire is sometimes not commensurate with what you need occasionally at a two michelin star restaurant it's very difficult to find staff and i don't always necessarily think it has to do with a salary as well but it's just a matter of getting people in who have the focus and and the love for it this uh it's not all about the level you are and and then i don't always inquire to have the fully seasoned cooks in my kitchen i hire a lot of students out of schools and it's more that drive and that precision and that love for it that i feel like it's it's missing Uh, i feel like everyone has a very rush sense of uh, becoming a head chef or executive chef and no one really wanted put in the work to go through the the lines first and i think that's that's the hardest part to to keep where can aquavit go from here is the third michelin star a a true goal that you and your staff are focusing on have you had meetings do you make plans in order to try to achieve that and think about how that can be a goal or is that not is that not part of the the day-to-day planning discussion at Aquavit? Not on a day-to-day discussion, no, but it's definitely there and it's it's something that we do uh, want to see in the future. Um, are we there to strive for it now i i'm i don't think so i think we still have some growing to do and and i i feel like where we are right now i'm I'm very humbled and blessed to be able to to have the two michelin stars and and have uh, customers uh, be happy and write good reviews and come back and celebrate with us so i feel at the moment 
this is this is where we need to be but are we looking for the future for three stars yeah of course we are <laughs> but uh, I feel like it, it needs to take its uh, time to get there let's fast forward way past hopefully three Michelin stars and you being at Aquavit for a long time I found a quote that said that your dream would be to open a fine dining bed and breakfast. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, is that still the dream? Is it a dream or has that changed? And if, uh, if this is still in fact sort of your end goal dream retirement scenario, where, where might that exist? Is it returning home? It's, it's definitely on my, um, retirement agenda or it's some way where I feel like I when one kitchen might get too too rough on me uh, that's definitely a goal further along my lifespan that I look for um, it will it will be in a warm warmer country than Sweden but it will be along the ocean if it's uh, Portugal or Spain or if it's on this side of the Atlantic on in U.S. or South America, I, I don't, I don't know. I just know that it will be by the ocean, and um, it will be a place to to settle down and, and finish finish off uh, finish off my life the way I wanted. Chef, thanks so much for being here. Tell everyone who's listening where they can find you, uh, where the restaurant is located. So you'll find me at uh, Aquavit. It's on 55th between Madison and Park. And mm. open for breakfast, lunch, dinner. What are the services like? <laughs> uh, not breakfast. <laughs> um, so we open for lunch and dinner Monday to Friday. And then uh, Saturdays uh, we uh, do dinner. Uh, this Saturday coming up, it's actually one of our biggest holidays in Sweden called Midsummer. So we do open uh, for a traditional Swedish uh, smorgasbord um, this Saturday for brunch. So once, once, in a, once a year. Cool. Yeah. All right, everyone, go check that out. Uh, Chef, thanks again for being here. Really appreciate you being on the show and, and telling us your story. Thank you for having me. And everyone who's listening, join us every Tuesday for another episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.